0: Good morning everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles you can go and take those out. We are going to continue today in our series called A Glorious Bride where we are talking about the local church, um, all that it is, all that it, uh, all that we desire for it to be, all that the Lord desires for it to be. And so this morning we're going to continue in that series uh, talking about the local church, and we turn our attention today to a, a new topic of unity. So We're looking at the church as a family that is unified, and so if you want to turn open to John chapter 17, flip up to John 17. We're not afraid to, to read larger passages, so I'm just going to read this whole chapter for us. Uh, We're going to focus, in our time, we're actually going to be more in 11 to 23, but I think it's worthwhile for us to to hear the word uh, read in full. So, John chapter 17, if you want to follow along with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And listen in here closely. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. God, we come to you again, Lord, asking for you to meet us here this morning. Lord, we know that when we read your word, God, it possesses the power to to influence our lives, Lord, to, to transform our thinking, God, to bring correction, encouragement, consolation, comfort, the full spectrum. Lord, and so we pray this morning, God, that as we consider these words, Lord, the words of Jesus, God, we pray for your help in understanding them, Lord. We pray for your help in understanding them, God, so that we might be those who better understand what it looks like to relate to one another within the church. We love you, God. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What what goes through your mind in the waning moments before your death? You only have a few hours, and your mind goes to something. And, And these last thoughts and last words, they have a certain weight and a certain gravity. To them. They mean something. They might reveal what you've felt like has been your life's purpose or your life's motivation. These last words might reveal what you most care about in this life. And here in John chapter 17, we have some of Jesus' last words. We have some of his last words in the form of a prayer. Here in John 17, Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. He knows that he's headed for the agony of the cross. And with that looming on the horizon for him, he prays for his disciples. And and when we think of what you might pray in that instance, what Jesus might pray in one of his final recorded Prayers. It could have included any number of, of sentiments. You know, Father, deliver these disciples, deliver them from this coming persecution that they're gonna have to endure. You could have prayed, Father, give these disciples a fuller understanding of my reason for coming, of my reason for, for dying. But what I think is so striking about Jesus' prayer that we have here is that He is most focused on His disciples being unified. After he leaves them, he's most focused on their unity. One pastor has put it this way he says, This prayer shows us that as Jesus prepares to bear the weight of the world's sin on his head, he has the unity of his church on his mind. It's as if Jesus, this one, in in all of his wisdom, looks down the road at all of the hostility, at all of the difficulty. That his disciples are going to face. In anticipation of that, he prays that those things will not actually tear them apart. That he prays that that the fabric of unity that God has sewn together in his church will not be torn. That it won't be torn by, by daggers of difficulty, by daggers of danger, of doctrinal controversy. He prays these things for his disciples at that time, that they would be unified. And he is praying these things even for us in this room today. This is a prayer that that Jesus still intercedes on our behalf before the Father. So three different times in this chapter, Jesus prays for the church to be marked by this this oneness, this togetherness. Prays that they may be one. You may have seen it there in verse 11 and verse 21. And in verse 22. And in each of these instances, he adds to this that this oneness, this unity, is to be patterned after the unity that he has with the Father. This unity between God the Father and God the Son. And we also see, in, especially in verse 21, 23, that he wants his church to be unified for a specific purpose. He wants the church to be unified so that his message will be amplified. So we're see, we going to see in these verses the petition for unity, the purpose for unity, and the pattern for our unity. So look closer there at Jesus' petition that they may be one. Look at it in verse 11. It says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure in chapters 14 through 16 of this farewell discourse, he told them that that his leaving is actually gonna be something that's for their good. He he tells them that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit is gonna come to dwell within them, to dwell with them. And here in, in verse 11, he begins to show us that as he thinks about leaving his disciples, He asked for the Father to keep these disciples in his name, to spiritually protect them in the days after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. Jesus is showing this special care for his disciples, wanting to meet them in their anxiety and their worry. And we can know that this this prayer here in verse 11 for spiritual protection Uh, or it is for spiritual protection it's not for a physical protection for his disciples just a few verses later in verse 15 if you look down there he says i do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one jesus is not praying for physical deliverance for his disciples he's praying for spiritual safety from satan's schemes In verse 11, he does this. He connects this spiritual safekeeping that he's praying to the Father for with his disciples being unified together. And if we think about the schemes of the evil one, the schemes of Satan when it comes to the church, it often involves sowing seeds of disunity in the church, sowing disunity among Jesus' disciples We can see the seeds of disunity in the early church. Think about the letters to the early church. So many of them are addressing this very issue. We look in Galatians and we see that Paul and Peter are on different sides of the issue of circumcision, the issue of what what it looks like now for Jewish people to be Christians and, and what it looks like for Gentiles to be Christians. Do they have to become Jews? We see in Corinth, all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, that the people are divided on issues of eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, divided on the Lord's Supper that we've looked at in previous weeks, weeks, divided on the spiritual gifts that we've even talked about this past Sunday. And we can see the seeds of disunity even in the history of the church. We can see it in in the splicing of denominations. We can see it in in factions and factionalism that can take hold over non-essential issues in the church. And what's important for us this morning is is to see that this is not just a problem that's out there. We have to see that that we are not immune to seeing disunity in our own church, to seeing disunity under the banner of faithful Bible church. From, From asserting preferences about congregational music, to viewing ourselves as theologically superior to a brother or sister across the room, to gossiping about things happening in one another's lives. There's countless ways that division, that disunity can be cultivated in a church congregation. And and it's important to see that Satan stands by smugly watching each time a seed of division finds fertile ground in the church. Each time a spark of disunity ignites a kind of firestorm within the church, he stands smugly by. Because he knows how powerful a unified church actually is. He knows the reality that we read about there in verses 20 to 23 better than we ourselves even do at times. There in verse 20, Jesus, he prays for those who will one day become his disciples because of the ministry of his current disciples. He's praying for each of us here today who are Christians. We are the ones That Jesus has on his mind and in praying for us he reiterates his petition that they may all be one as he and the father are one and then he takes things even one step further notice the so that statements look there again with me at the end of verse 21 and verse 23 at the end of 21 he says so that the world may believe that you have sent me At the end of 23, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Back in verse 18, Jesus says that that he has sent his disciples into the world. And praying to the Father there, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so Jesus, he's brought his redeemed people into the church, and then he's sending them back out into the world. And as he does that, it's his prayer that his disciples will be unified as they embrace this mission, as they embrace all that it means in the latter half of verse 21 and verse 23 to represent Jesus. Satan knows how powerful a unified church that actually does embrace that will be, which means that he also knows that division and disunity will be something that distracts us from the mission that God has called us to, and it's gonna be something that detracts from the very message that we've been given to declare. Churches that, that are weighed down by disunity are not freed up to carry out the mission that Jesus has given to them. And think about it, the sheer amount of energy that that it requires, that it costs to deal with disunity within the church, it leaves us with so little left to actually give to witnessing to the world about the goodness of God. You know, we can think about it like almost unaligned car tires and how ineffective, uh, how uh, just kind of inefficient even it is for them to be unaligned. And, And when we think about disunity. It works in this same way. As we in the church are unaligned, we are not working together in the same direction. It works against moving forward on mission with God. We end up expending our energy in all of the wrong directions. Uh, One pastor says it like this. This is such a helpful visual. He says, division in the church is like a ship that is perpetually falling apart all the time has to be spent patching the holes and the ship never gets sent out to sea. Division, disunity, they distract us from the mission that God has given us. He has sent us into the world. And and division, and disunity, it detracts from the message of the gospel that we've been given to to declare. You know, the end of verse 21 and 23 that we read, uh, it really helps us to see something uh, about that, that very issue of us detracting from the message and, and conversely adding to or, or amplifying the message. Uh, th- those so that statements, they help us see why Jesus uh, cares so much about unity in the church. Uh, I think it really comes down to this. It's that the church's unity makes Jesus real to unbelievers, The church's unity makes Jesus real to unbelievers. When we live in unity with one another, we lend credibility to the existence of God and the truthfulness of the gospel. We amplify the truth of the gospel. Our relationships begin to reflect that God is real and that the gospel is actually powerful. And and the opposite is, is true. When we live in disunity, we make belief in God and faith in the gospel more difficult for people. There's a a pastor in the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, and he says it this way. He says, how painfully true it is that in every age divisions have been the scandal of religion and the weakness of the church of Christ. How often Christians have wasted their strength and contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and the devil. Catch this, he says, how repeatedly they have given occasion to the world to say, when you have settled your own internal differences, we will believe. All this we need not doubt, the Lord Jesus foresaw with prophetic eye. It was the foresight of it which made him pray so earnestly that believers might be one there's another pastor who says divisions in the church breeds atheism in the world that's really what's at play in this pursuit of unity when people look at a church and they see it embroiled in infighting and factions they can lean in and they can say is god really in that is he really present amongst those people this unity, it makes this kind of statement to the world that God is not enough for us, that there is something lacking in him. You know, surely if he were powerful, surely if the gospel was effective in bringing change, these people would be able to actually get along with one another. But when people look at a church and they see a group of people who, who love each other, who sacrifice for each other, a group of people who are unified They can say maybe this God they talk about is real. Maybe the message they preach is powerful to change like they say it is. Our unity as a church, it makes Christ credible to those who have yet to believe in him. So will we get in the way of the message? Will we detract from it? Or will we be unified and amplify the truthfulness of the message of the gospel? But even in this conversation about unity, it's, I think we should stop and, and realize that and not pretend <clears throat> that unity in the church is only kind of a snap of our fingers away. The biblical picture, even when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, another passage on unity, shows us that this, is, this unity that we're striving after, it's something to be maintained something to be cultivated, something to be worked for within the body of Christ. And the focus even in Jesus' prayer here on unity shows that there's a need for supernatural help in pursuing unity. Jesus wouldn't pray this if we didn't need help with it. So pursuing unity, it requires sweat and and sacrifice from us. The, The car guy, think of the person who loves you know, the, the old model car out in their driveway, they know the sweat and sacrifice in maintaining their beloved vehicle. <clears throat> their their prized car, it's gonna fall into disrepair and it's gonna lose its luster if it's left alone. It has to be closely cared for and maintained. The gardener knows the sweat and sacrifice in cultivating and maintaining her rose bushes. Countless hours of digging and pruning and paying close attention. And the Christian will know the sweat and sacrifice of cultivating and maintaining unity. You will come to know the difficult work of self-denial that it calls for. You will come to know the arduous task of assuming the best in other Christians within the church. And you will come to know even the sacred duty of staying, the sacred duty of embracing relational difficulty even as it may arise in the church, the sacred duty of growing up with other Christians. So thinking about the sweat and sacrifice required, I would just say don't run away if things get difficult. When relationships get messy, when feelings get hurt, when disagreements inevitably happen, Stay engaged. Go to your brother or sister in Christ. Seek understanding. Forgive when this is called for. Pursue this unity with all the sweat and sacrifice that it might take. It's worthwhile. It brings honor to God. And it's something that comes with supernatural help. Jesus has prayed for the unity that we will pursue. He has prayed that his church will experience the genuine love, the genuine fellowship that he has experienced with the Father for all of eternity. He desires that his church will be unified. And so when you think about reaching across the division and the disunity, think about how you do this with divine help, with supernatural help. You send the text that you're dreading, sending. You make the call. You approach the person with whom you have division. You have conversations, seeking understanding, exchanging forgiveness, pursuing unity. And you have Jesus's prayer filling in all the spaces where you feel fear in these things. Jesus's prayer filling in the space. This is supernatural help that comes alongside us as we pursue unity. And think, too, about how the the pattern for our unity, even that we see come out in these verses, it gives us a sense for how glorious and life-giving the experience of unity in the church actually is and can be. We, We don't need to see this pursuing unity as just an exercise in grinning and bearing it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, it's something that can be difficult. Yes, we're going to need supernatural help in pursuing it. But it doesn't need to be something that's drudgery for us. It doesn't need to be some sort of white-knuckled, joyless endeavor for us. Jesus gives us this glorious vision of unity by, by grounding our unity that we're after in the Trinity itself, in the Godhead. He prays that the unity that we will have in the church will be like the unity that he and the Father have this kind of unity that spans backward into time before creation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all unified together. As they are all in this mutually fulfilling relationship of love and understanding. It's a joyful picture of union. It's a unity that, that, that Jesus enjoys with the Father that leads him to pray to the Father in Luke chapter 22, not my will, but yours be done. It's a unity that's defined by honor and sacrifice and by joy and love. That's the pattern that we have for our own unity. And we can see it in verses 20 through 26, even as you think of 24 to 26, that, that this unity of the Godhead, a unity in the Trinity, it's something that's that's energized by, that's animated by love. A word that has come to mean so little for us in our current day, but a word that is so biblical and so rich with meaning. There is love that undergirds the unity between Jesus and the Father. And it helps us see that even when we think about our own pursuit of unity in the church, as we think about following this pattern of unity, we can see that, that apart from the, the oxygen of love, the church's unity will suffocate. Apart from the oxygen of love, the church's unity will suffocate. The oxygen of love. It sounds a little bit like an r and album, which you can take it and use it for that if you so wish. But I want us to think about that, that the oxygen Of love. We need this kind of steady flow of love that gives each other the benefit of the doubt in the church. We need this love that bears with others who might sin against us. We need this love that believes the best about those whom we disagree with. A love that seeks understanding rather than jumping to accusation. A love that forgives and seeks forgiveness. The thing that's gonna take the air out of the room, so to speak, when we think about pursuing unity, is a suspicion of each other's motives. It's a assumption about uh, people's agendas, assuming that there are hidden agendas at play. Christian unity, it can't breathe in a church where those things take hold. We need the love of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When we look in verse seven, it says, love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We in the church, we can come out from from the kind of dingy and dark cellar of suspicion and assumption, of gossip and grudges, and we can come into the fresh air of freely shown love to one another. We can embody this kind of love as a church And really, we must embody this kind of love as a church if we are going to be unified, if we're gonna be a unified church that amplifies the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus has prayed for us, friends. Understand that today. In John 17, Jesus has prayed for you and for me. He has prayed for faithful Bible church this moment in time. He even right now in this very moment sits at the right hand of the Father on high and intercedes on our behalf. prays for us that we would be a church that is unified, that we would be a church that loves one another deeply, that cares for one another deeply. And so we can take heart. Jesus is praying these things. For us. God, we thank you, Lord. that we are on your mind, God. The psalmist says, "Who are we that you are mindful of us? And yet we come to the biblical evidence, time and time again, that we are on your mind, God that you do consider us even in this current moment, Lord. God, that when you uttered these words before your disciples all of those years ago in the upper room, you had the church that was to come, the disciples that would be made on your mind. And even then, you desired that those disciples that would be brought into the church would be unified that they would understand that they all arrived within the church through the same pursuit that you had after them, that the grounding for each of them to be unified to one another was that they were unified to Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to to see that today, God. Help us to see, God, that, That to be this church that is unified together, Lord, that we must go back to to these sort of foundational truths, God, that we are, are with each other unified only because we are in Christ, unified with Jesus, unified to you, Father. And so, God, we... We throw ourselves at your feet, God, and we we ask for your help in this. God, that we would receive supernatural help as we step into what can be the hard places often of pursuing unity in the church, God. Give us a deep and an abiding love for one another, God. A love that says you are my brother, you are my sister. I desire for any division that exists with us be demolished. Give us that desire in spades, Lord, we pray. And we know that when we lift these requests to you, you hear us, God. And so we thank you, Father, that you will hear us even as we go forward from here and lift this prayer to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.